Al Jazeera podcast. A plane crashes in Russia. The passenger list, including the leader of the Wagner mercenaries, Evgeny Prigozhin, led a brief revolt in June, described as treason by President Vladimir Putin, before apparently being forgiven. What other facts can be drawn from what happened? I'm Cyril Vanier, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. Our guests today to talk about all of this in Moscow, Pavel Felgenhauer, defense and military analyst. In Brussels, Dunaka Obakon, professor of post-Soviet politics, author of The Color Revolutions in the Former Soviet Republics, Successes and Failures. And in Rome, Owen Matthews, author of Overreach, The Inside Story of Putin's War on Ukraine. Warm welcome to all of you, gentlemen. I want to first ask all of you, we have to get this out of the way, do any of you believe that this plane crash was an accident? Pavel. Well, of course it's not an accident. I mean, planes don't fall out of the sky by accident. Uh, 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 this was uh, some kind of explosion on board. Um, some say it uh, was, was a bomb on board, or maybe it was shot down by a SAM anti-aircraft missile, most likely a bomb. Uh, but it's not an accident. I mean, a bomb on board is, is not an accident. Dunaka, your take. Yeah, I, I agree with Pavel. It's, it's extremely unlikely uh, that it's an accident. There are many theories circulating uh, that it was taken down by air defenses who mistook it for a drone. That's highly unlikely that they would make such an error, that there was a, a bomb on the plane. Uh, you know, the Russian state is, of course, going to investigate this, but I think very few will um, lend much credence to, to the results of such an investigation. I think that this is, is seen as, as payback uh, mm -hmm. for the rebellion two months ago, and, and and that I think for many people, the surprise is, is that Yevgeny Prigozhin lasted so long, two full months after that aborted rebellion of, of, of June of this year. Uh, so, Owen, no surprise, the dominant theory here is that this was indeed payback by the Kremlin, and the Kremlin is in one way or another, uh, one form or another, behind the downing of this plane and the death of Prigozhin. As far as you're concerned, is there, are there any credible alternative theories? Well, if this was an accident, then uh, an awful lot of people um, who happen to be enemies of Putin are having bad accidents. They're falling out of windows. Mm -hmm. They're dying in mysterious murder-suicides. Uh, at least 22, um, depending on how you count it. Um, oligarchs, um, sort of dissident, uh, sort of uh, uh, bureaucrats that have fled the regime. Uh, Prigozhin himself, the uh, nominal commander um, of Wagner, Dmitry Utkin, who died with him. Uh, uh, this is clearly not an accident. I mean, there's just a very clear pattern going back, in fact, many years, but uh, it seems to have actually kicked up into a new gear the uh, the bloody retribution that the Kremlin has wrought against its enemies has just gone to a new level uh, since the beginning of the war. Pavel, all of you are analysts of what goes on in Russia and Russia current affairs and Kremlinology to some degree. Pavel, what did you first think when you heard the news that this plane had gone down and Prigozhin was aboard? Uh, well, it was that this is uh, the end of the Wagner group as we knew it before. Uh, maybe they will survive in some kind of other form, but the way that we knew them, they will not. 
and the, the predominance of them, especially uh, the use of Wagner Group by Prigozhin for personal political ambitions, uh, also will not be present anymore. Though the, the fighters are there, they will maybe continue in different places of the world, uh, maybe under different banners. Uh, they won't disappear, but the uh, phenomenon of Wagner is over. It's The organization is fully decapitated. It's not only Prigozhin, who was the political uh, figurehead and the fi finance behind it, but also uh, Dmitry Utkin, who was the founder, actually, he was the founder, not Prigozhin, of the Wagner Group, and he was their military commander. And that's and had even most, more respect with the actual uh, command structure than Prigozhin himself. They're both out of the game, and that's a game changer. Dunakan, do you agree with this? Wagner fully decapitated? I would put this in perspective with what Daniel Hawkins was telling us a few minutes ago, that Wagner had a plan. If they found themselves leaderless at any point, that they would—there was a plan B. He didn't articulate what that plan was, but he did say that there's discipline among the ranks, that there's a hierarchy, and that there is apparently a plan B. So this idea of Wagner fully being fully decapitated, what do you think? Well, it's difficult to imagine a Wagner without Evgeny Prozhin or, or Dmitry Utkin. Um, I mean, we have to look at it, I guess, in terms of the arenas where a Wagner has been uh, influential. So in Ukraine, it's it had already before this uh, death of Prigozhin, um, it, it, you know, their their star had waned in terms of the military uh, front in in Ukraine, and they had been removed from the the battlefield, so to speak. In Africa, there was a perception that their operations would continue, um, but you know that doesn't have to have Prigozhin at the helm. I mean, the local um, authoritarian leaders in Africa really don't care you know, who's at the head of the Russian mercenary group that they deal with. So, you know, Wagner or a variation of Wagner could continue in Africa. I think the most important impact is within Russian politics itself. Um, mm. In that uh, introductory report, it was said that Putin hasn't commented on, on what has happened, and there's been very little commentary in the Russian media. And I think that's simply because actions speak much louder than words. Putin doesn't feel the need to say anything. I think he feels that what has happened speaks for itself. That's interesting. The, the messaging, Owen, the messaging from Russian authorities, there has been no public statement from the, uh, as we record this, from the Russian Defense Ministry, also no public statement from the Kremlin, much less from Vladimir Putin himself, who, by the way, has appeared on TV multiple times since then. He was speaking at the BRICS summit. If he had wanted to say something, anything about this, you know, he had a microphone, he had cameras, he chose not to. What do you make of the messaging? The manner of Prigozhin's murder was theatrical. Uh, he didn't die of poisoning. He didn't die of he didn't wasn't knocked down by a car. It wasn't. It was clearly something that was meant to be spectacularly violent and sending a clear message. Um, the main thing that it tells us about Russia is that actually the late Putin's Russia is a failed state. In any kind of more normal country, a rebel and a mutineer would be disarmed, arrested, tried, imprisoned. I mean, there is due process. In Putin's Russia, there is no due process. And although the killing of Prigozhin is an assertion, a reassertion of Putin's power, because Prigozhin was a walking, talking, 
proof that of Putin's weakness, uh, it does show that actually the normal mechanisms of any kind of you know any kind of state uh, you know form of state sanctioned justice just don't apply in the, what's essentially uh, sort of a mafia hit on a man who trusted Putin's word. The only reason why he was in Russia was because Putin gave him his word, and Putin broke his word and murdered him. Pavel, both Tanaka and Owen commented on the manner of, uh, of uh, Prigozhin's disappearance, right? A plane crash as opposed to other ways in which it could have been done. And this prevailing theory that the Kremlin is behind this, what do you make of this? A, a, a plane crash versus any other way it could have been done? Uh, uh, well, first in terms of, all, of the messaging, uh, Russia I mean. has due pro yes. First of all, Russia has due process. What happened to Prigozhin is Russian-style due process. Simply, our due process is different than your due process. <laughs> and uh, also, I would say I sense some uh, sarcasm the there, Pavel. Yes. No. I mean that's a fact. And a um, uh, plane uh, taking out at the same time uh, Prigozhin and uh, Utkin and some other chiefs of the um, Wagner group, uh, important people there, uh, that's more effective than just taking out one. Actually, uh, Utkin was more a bit radical. He was leading the troops on Moscow on, in, then in uh, June, and he was stopped by Prigozhin in his tracks when he was going to maybe going into Moscow trying to do so. So taking out Prigozhin and leaving Utkin would be a bad idea. So now you get all those birds with one stone. Uh, that's effective. Not only due process, but effective. Uh, Owen, I know you want to sink your teeth into this question. Does this make Vladimir Putin stronger or weaker? Uh, in the short term, stronger. Um, in the long term, I mean, clearly, not only, as I already mentioned, does it show that, you know, the, that Russia is a failed state, um, you know, but clearly it's significant that, you know, the only successful decapitation strikes that the Russian military is, uh, is carrying out is against its own side. So, you know, clearly this is a sign that, you know, not everything is going very well in Putin's policy. Um, the, uh, the In the short term, I think he has reinforced his position. But in the long term, I think he's sowed dragon's teeth for two reasons. One, if you make a, if you are, let's say, if we say that Putin is a mafia boss, you're the, you're the capo di tutti capi, you make a promise to one of your rebellious capos, then you break it and murder him. That seriously undermines your authority to make promises to anyone in the future. And I think for many Wagner fighters, and in fact, it's been, uh, this has been said on a Wagner-affiliated telegram channel called Grey Zone, they said the lesson of this murder is that if you, make, if you do a mutiny, you have to take it to the end. So, okay. in fact, actually, yes. Well, I, I just have to say at this stage, and we understand your analysis. Obviously, you're responsible for those words, um, and we bring in all the different voices on this story, uh, on this program. But I, I, your point is well taken. Danaka, this question of whether it makes Vladimir Putin weaker or stronger, your thoughts? 
I think this is a very old question for any autocratic leader. And you can look to, for example, Machiavelli's The Prince, where he posed the question, is it better for a, an autocratic leader to be loved or feared? And he came down on the side of being feared. So breaking your word, yes, that's, that's not a great precedent. Uh, if you're a mafia don, for example, but more important is being feared. And if somebody crosses you, if somebody undermines your authority, if someone betrays you, you have to remember Vladimir Putin's speech that day back in June, where he said this was the greatest threat to Russian sovereignty since 1917, since the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917. Um, you know, and the, the, the people behind these were traitors. Uh, for him to have allowed that to be forgiven and forgotten, to be kind of swept aside as some misunderstanding, even though lives were lost, I think would have, from his perspective, undermined his authority fundamentally. And that's why I think for many, Prigozhin was a dead man walking from that day onwards. Once he once he, he, he didn't take out the don, so to speak, once the czar was remaining after uh, that day, uh, his days were numbered. Pavel, <laughs> does this change anything going forward to the war that is being prosecuted in Ukraine? Uh, well, directly not, because the Wagners were, uh, they were removed from the war zone. Uh, they had, of course, for a long time, even beginning with Syria, problems with the defense ministry and its hierarchy. Actually, those who formed Wagner, uh, led by uh, Utkin, uh, they left the Russian military. They were all military people because they very much despised how the Russian military hierarchy is running things. And uh, they had problems with them in Syria. They had problems with them in Africa with supplies and actually other things. So directly, they were right now not involved in any fighting in Ukraine, though there could be problems if something really goes wrong and the Wagner group could have been mobilized to be thrown into battle. And now it will be harder to do. And most likely, they will not very much want to do that and will not be as coherent as they could have been. So, but, so not really this right now, but basically the bottom line is, no, this will not right now directly hmm. uh, influence the battlefield situation in Ukraine. Okay, no immediate impact on the war in Ukraine. What becomes, Pavel, of the Wagner fighters? I know you said decapitated without their leadership, but we still have thousands of experienced, trained, disciplined fighters who are out there. What happens to them? Well, the, the Wagner group uh, had, was very kind of flexible. That was their big advantage. They had uh, large lists of uh, people who served them with them in different places, specialists, people who knew how to use weapons, and they knew these people, and so they could easily expand their uh, structure and then uh, contract if they are right now not fully in business, so easily mobilize, easily demobilize. And they had a, a, a skeleton structure of command and control that could be expanded. So they, yes, they were very effective in that. And these uh, people would not disappear, these fighters, not at all. But decapitation of them as an organization means that the, the a grand Wagner group, as we saw it this year, I mean, with even their, their march successful on Rostov and taking Rostov, a city of a million people, and march on Moscow, that's most likely right now not happening again. There's the, the, they'll have problems with financing, with organization, 
with working with the defense ministry because they need uh, ordnance and equipment say, within Africa. There's going to be lots of problems, and but they won't disappear. These people won't disappear and may, may reappear in, an, in other forms, organizational forms. Where does this leave, um, Danaka, let me address this question to you. We have just a few minutes left on the show. Where does this leave uh, the, the approval rating, if you will, for Vladimir Putin in Russia? And I take your earlier points about strategic uh, issues for him and keeping himself in power and all of that, but the recent polling tells us that he's wildly popular in Russia, uh, to the tune of 80 percent. Um, what does this do to that? Well, it's very difficult to gauge exactly how popular Vladimir Putin is, especially at a time of war, especially in a dictatorship. I mean, people who are, ran, you know, who are called up by random polling agencies, irrespective of their independence or otherwise, they're going to find people at the other end of the line who are very wary of giving their real opinion of Vladimir Putin or the war, especially when they see events of the last 24 hours to those who are seen to defy him in any way. So I, I, I think naturally, of course, Russia is a state of war and there will always be a constituency who say, when my country's at war, I want my country to win. But I think what was uh, revealed during Progozhin's aborted rebellion back in June, and this is why it gave Vladimir Putin cause for some concern, was the lack of popular support for Vladimir Putin during that memorable Saturday. You know, there was no mass swelling of opinion, no protests on the street saying, we support Putin or down with Prigozhin. In fact, the opposite, uh, where Prigozhin entered, like in, in Rostov, there was evidence of, of support for Prigozhin. So I, I would question this notion that Putin is a popular leader. As I said, he rules by fear and by passivity. I mean, Russia as a country is, it has, a, has a long history of autocratic rule, uh, punctured by very brief moments of transition between one form of autocratic rule and another. So that's why when you see see, you know, change in Russia, fundamental change, it tends to be not a bottom-up, uh, as a result of a bottom-up campaign, it tends to be an intra-elite struggle, which, again, is what the Prigozhin-Putin struggle was all about. Oh, and just before I ask you to answer the same question, I'll have to push back a little bit on, you used the word dictatorship a moment ago, uh, and again, I understand the different points of view here, but it, Russia is still a country that has elections, that has a parliament, that has some sort of political process, um, but... I know what you're going to answer is pretty much what you told us a moment ago, and we do welcome all these views. Owen, your thoughts on this, on where it leaves Vladimir Putin, the public perception, I mean, of Vladimir Putin in Russia? Well, given that Russia is a dictatorship and, and in no way a democracy, and although it retains some of the sort of phantom structures of democracy, uh, it's actually rather hard to tell, um, as uh, as my fellow panelists have said. Um, there is a fundamental problem with polling in a in a totalitarian system. We don't really know uh, the exact extent to uh, of, of that public support. Um, what we do know is three rather important things, is that um, hitherto, in the major moments of revolution in Russia, when they, we have seen state collapse, three things are the case. One, there is a profound economic crisis. Two, the regime has discredited itself and shown itself to be weak. And three, there is an alternative leader waiting in the wings. That was the same in 1917. It was the same in 1991. Um, none of those things pertain in today's Russia. There is no alternative. The 
state, despite uh, battlefield setbacks, has actually done a remarkably good job of fighting off uh, the effects of sanctions, of cushioning its population from the uh, from any kind of economic uh, crisis, or certainly not an economic crisis comparable to 1917 or 1991. And third and most importantly, uh, there is uh, no real sign that uh, Putin um, is actually fatally losing his authority. And mm. uh, that's really what we're talking about today, is about Putin sort of closing that last open wound that was made you know, in his regime by Prigozhin. Uh, the rebellion was crushed, uh, despite the fact that actually it did show some worrying cracks in Russian society. Those Russian, those those cracks are as yet nothing near to being an existential threat to the Putin regime, however much uh, the Ukrainians, for instance, might wish otherwise. Pavel, looking forward, five years from now, how will we look back on this episode? Will we say this was a fork in the road moment where things changed and that sowed the seeds perhaps for future events? Um, or will we say this was just a blip on the radar and this was handled by the Kremlin in much the same way that many other things have been handled by the Kremlin? Well, for that, we'll have to actually live these five years to understand that. Uh, when, say, in uh, 1916, uh, the, some of the supporters, actually, of the Tsarist regime uh, murdered Rasputin, uh, uh, then it was a big story, but then it turned out, well, it's a story for uh, uh, comic books more than for the real history of Russia. It was a blip. So I don't know for sure. Uh, again, we don't know actually totally sure. We believe that this, uh, that uh, uh, Utkin and uh, Prigozhin had, have perished in this crash. Uh, there'll be evidence, but there were also known that both had doubles. Maybe there are going to be sightings of Prigozhin mm. here, there, in Africa, somewhere, like um, Elvis Presley in the coming years. So this could be a pop story, actually, in the future. <laughs> I did not expect that we would be ending the show on Elvis Presley and a pop story, but, uh, but your point is well taken. I'd like to thank all our guests today. Pavel Felgenhauer, Donaka Obakon, and Owen Matthews. This episode was produced by Dermot Fleming, Kara Legg, Fongi Nguyen, and Jim Gilchrist. Studio sound was by Hasib Hashmi. The program was edited by George Joseph, Khaled Sultan, and Joe DeFrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. Tune in on Friday for our next edition. This week on The Take, tensions on the Poland-Belarus border, as Poland sends 10,000 additional troops there. What does it mean for local residents? That's The Take by Al Jazeera. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.